Today is Tuesday, March the 7th, and you are listening to the World Socialist website. UAW runoff elections end in debacle for bureaucracy. Jerry White, March 7, 2023. Initial vote counting in the second round of the United Auto Workers UAW elections concluded over the weekend, with challenger Sean Fain maintaining a narrow 645 vote lead over incumbent UAW President Ray Curry. It appears at this point that Fain may win, but there are 1,608 ballots being challenged. Results are not expected until late this week or early next week. There are a number of significant facts about the election. First, the second round of voting took place before the court-appointed UAW monitor was able to certify the first round, which concluded in December 2022. This is because of the comprehensive protest filed by UAW presidential candidate Will Lehman to the monitor, documenting a systematic campaign of voter suppression that resulted in less than 10% of the membership voting in the first round. The Monitor has not even bothered to reply to the protest, even though the UAW deliberately defied the Monitor's own mandate to update membership mailing information and widely publicise the election to, quote, ensure the enfranchisement of as many members as possible, end of quote. Instead, it let this anti-democratic farce continue. Second, the turnout in the runoff election was abysmal, Despite efforts by the UAW apparatus to make the election more broadly known, once the two chosen candidates of the apparatus were in a runoff, it took elementary measures such as posting announcements and sending mailers to remind workers to vote, which it did not do in the first round. In the end, however, only 138,628 valid ballots were cast, less than 13% of the 1.1 million active and retired UAW members who were eligible to vote. What explains this? The UAW apparatus and its two candidates for president have no genuine base of support within the working class. After decades of collaborating with the corporations and successive governments in the systematic destruction of workers' jobs, living standards and working conditions, the affluent upper-middle-class executives who occupy the union's misnamed, quote, Solidarity House and its satellites are viewed with contempt by the rank and file. Whoever wins this election will have secured the votes of about 6% of the UAW membership. This, however, overstates the actual vote count. If one subtracts more than 41,000 current and former union officials and their close hangers-on, the next UAW president will have won closer to 3% of the vote of rank-and-file workers. The election was nothing but an ugly contest within the UAW apparatus itself. At stake was the distribution of highly paid positions and access to the union's more than $1 billion in assets. If there are any differences between the long-standing administrative caucus and Fane's UAW Members United faction, they are only tactical over how best to contain the growing rebellion of the rank-and-file against the UAW bureaucracy and the corporations. Fain is a long-time operative of the UAW's bureaucratic apparatus and himself a former member of the Administrative Caucus. He worked his way up from a local union position at a Chrysler casting plant in Kokomo, Indiana in 2001 to a top staffer at Solidarity House for the last 11 years. 
As a member of the UAW Chrysler National Negotiating Committee, Fain backed the savage attacks on workers' wages and conditions in 2009 and in 2011, before being appointed as Assistant Director of the UAW Fiat Chrysler Department in 2015. The department would later be called the Centre for the, quote, culture of corruption in the UAW when federal prosecutors indicted Fain's boss, Norwood Duell, in 2019 for taking company bribes in exchange for signing and enforcing pro-company contracts. Since November 2017, Fain has been co-director of the UAW Chrysler National Training Centre in Detroit, and more recently has become a leading voice in the union bureaucracy's efforts to claim that the corruption in the UAW only involved a, quote, few bad apples. As the WSWS has pointed out, the only thing that would significantly change if he were elected is that Fain would increase his current salary of $156,364 as an administrative assistant to the nearly $300,000 that a UAW president pockets. The US government's investigation into the decades-long corruption in the UAW which the Obama administration only initiated after Chrysler workers revolted in 2015 and overwhelmingly rejected a UAW-backed national contract for the first time in three decades, was never aimed at empowering rank-and-file workers. Instead, it was designed to put a democratic facelift on the bureaucracy so that it could maintain a grip over workers and continue to impose the dictates of the corporations and the government. Fain and the members of his slate have been backed by the Democratic Socialists of America and Labour Notes. These pseudo-left organisations, representing affluent layers of the upper middle class and union officialdom, function within the Democratic Party and play a critical role in its efforts to shore up the tattered credibility of the union apparatuses. But the outcome of the vote exposes that no section of the bureaucracy is supported by workers and the whole institution lacks any legitimacy. This is a debacle for the Biden administration, which is relying on the UAW apparatus to control the mounting insurgency of the working class against soaring inflation and intolerable working conditions. This upsurge of workers threatens to upend the decades-long suppression of wages, which has been key to the enrichment of the corporate and financial oligarchy. Most importantly, the American ruling class needs the unions to impose labour discipline as it gears up for an all-out war with Russia and China. In a guest column appearing in the New York Times last week, Australian war planner Ross Babbage, a senior fellow of the Centre for Strategic and Budgetary Assessments in Washington, D.C., said the outbreak of a major war with China, which, quote, is probably more likely now than in any other time since World War II, would require the imposition of unprecedented sacrifices on American workers. This would include emergency rationing and a surge of inflation and unemployment, Babbage writes, quote, especially in the period in which the economy is being repurposed for the war effort, which might include some automobile manufacturers switching to building aircraft or food processing companies converting to production of priority pharmaceuticals, end of quote. To prepare for war, Babbage insists critical supply chains must be relocated to the US and allied nations, and America must, quote, restore its dominance in global manufacturing, end of quote. After using the union bureaucracies to block strikes in the oil refineries, ports and railroads last year, the White House is further integrating them into the structure of the state as it prepares to convert to a wartime economy. 
This includes Biden's appointment last week of Ray Curry to a key position on the President's Export Council. This body, which consists of the heads of major US corporations and officials from virtually every government agency, including the heads of the Department of Homeland Security and the National Security Council, is tasked with export expansion as the US escalates its trade and military conflict with China. Opposition in the working class is growing against demands for ever greater sacrifice. The election is concluding as the UAW tries to push through a contract to Caterpillar, which would mean a 20% or more decline in real wages for 7,000 workers over the life of the proposed six-year contract. The UAW is also facing an explosion of anger over the mass firings of workers at auto plant supplier Dana, which was carried out with the complicity of the union bureaucracy. This year we will see major class battles among workers in the UAW and other sections of the working class in the US and internationally, including more than 170,000 GM, Ford and Stellantis workers in the US and Canada. The central issue raised by the campaign of Max Trucks worker Will Lehman was the need to transfer decision-making power from the UAW apparatus to the workers on the shop floor through the construction of a network of rank-and-file committees in every factory and workplace. Running as a socialist and fighter for the international unity of the working class, Lehman won nearly 5,000 votes from workers across the US. This demonstrates that there is a powerful foundation for unifying of the struggles of workers against capitalist exploitation through the building and expansion of the International Workers' Alliance of Rank-and-File Committees, the IWA-RFC. Huwara offensive against Palestinians fuels anti-Netanyahu protests in Israel. Jean Shul, March 6, 2023. Ongoing attacks on Palestinians in the occupied West Bank make it clear that the pogrom-like rampage of hundreds of Israeli settlers on the town of Huwara on February 26, while Israeli troops stood by, is part of a broader campaign of ethnic cleansing. Waged by Zionist settlers, it proceeds under the protection of the Israel Defence Forces, the IDF, and is led politically by the newly installed government of Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu that includes fascistic, racist and ultra-religious parties. Their declared aim is to annex the Palestinian territories and implement apartheid rule, as embodied in the, quote, nation-state law, end of quote, enshrining Jewish supremacy as the legal foundation of the state. Vigilante mobs attacked Huwara, beating residents with metal rods and rocks, killing one person and injuring 400 more, as well as setting fire to scores of homes and shops and hundreds of vehicles in a four to five hour orgy of violence. They also attacked Burin and Einbus in the northern West Bank. All are in a part of the West Bank under Israeli security control and just minutes away from an army brigade headquarters but Israeli soldiers stood by during the rampage. Not a single government minister condemned the atrocity. Just 10 people were arrested, of whom all but one were released. Itamar Ben-Gavir, 
National Security Minister and fascistic leader of Jewish power, declared, quote, The government of Israel, the state of Israel, the IDF, the security forces, they are the ones who have to crush our enemies, not the settlers. On Wednesday, Finance Minister and Religious Zionism leader Bedzael Smotrich, responsible for the settlements in the West Bank, said that Israel should, quote, wipe out Huwara, a demand tantamount to the horrors inflicted on the Palestinians when more than 700,000 were driven out in 1948-49 at the hands of Zionist militias. The town stores have only just reopened following orders by the IDF to keep their doors shuttered that have left storekeepers without an income. Settlers have issued threats on social media that they will return to the town in a repeat of their rampage. They plastered the area with posters demanding the army, quote, crush its enemies. One declared, quote, the Intifada is here. We demand to crush. We demand to respond with war, end of quote. Yesterday, Israeli forces stormed the Uman Said area, southeast of Beit Lom, and demolished a Palestinian mosque claiming it had been built without a building permit, which the Israeli authorities never grant. On January 23, soldiers stormed the Palestinian town of Isavieh and the Khan al-Almar community in East Jerusalem, where they demolished a greenhouse. The United Nations Office of the High Commission for Human Rights, the OHCHR, recently called on the major powers to take action against Israel's systemic and arbitrary demolition of Palestinian buildings. Israel demolished 132 Palestinian structures, including 34 residential and 15 donor-funded structures across 38 West Bank communities in January alone, a 135% increase on 2022. On Monday, Ben Gavir demanded that police continue demolishing Palestinian homes during Ramadan, set to begin on March 23, overturning past practice that has seen Israel refrain from doing so to avoid inflaming tensions further. The attempted expulsion of families in the Sheikh Jarrah neighbourhood of East Jerusalem during Ramadan in 2021 was one of the factors that precipitated the firing of rockets by Hamas, the Muslim Brotherhood-affiliated group that controls Gaza, Israel's bombardment of Gaza and riots in Israel's mixed Palestinian-Jewish cities in May of that year. Israel's escalating violence and criminality has killed at least 67 Palestinians so far in 2023, more than one per day, a rate far higher than last year when at least 171 Palestinians were killed in the West Bank and East Jerusalem, the highest death toll since 2005. It is setting the stage in the run-up to Ramadan and Passover for a violent conflagration that threatens to engulf not just the occupied Palestinian territories, but Israel and its neighbours. This growing threat has led increasing numbers of Israelis to take to the streets in protest. Last Saturday evening, around 160,000 rallied in Tel Aviv, Israel's commercial capital and largest city. An even greater number took part in pro-democracy demonstrations across Jerusalem, Hazilia, Netiana, Besheba, Haifa, Ashdod and scores of other towns, with organisers claiming that there were some 400,000 protesters in all. This is particularly significant, given that the organisers have sought to restrict the demonstration's focus to opposition to Netanyahu's plans to trim the powers of the judiciary. The main speakers at the rallies have been former generals, heads of the intelligence services and government ministers. Most of them are members of the misnamed Government of Change, 
headed by Naftali Bennett, Yel Lapid and Benny Gantz, had served under Netanyahu in the past and have few substantive political differences with him. They have deliberately ignored or downplayed growing social inequality and poverty and the worsening suppression of the Palestinians, ensuring that very few of Israel's Palestinian citizens have participated in the rallies. Their sole concern is to protect the Israeli state in the interest of the plutocrats. In marked contrast to the hands-off approach taken by the military and border police during the raid by Israeli settlers on Huwara, the police commissioner Kobe Shabtai readied 1,000 police officers for the demonstrations, particularly in Tel Aviv. He was determined to stop them blocking the Ayalon Highway, the city's chief highway, which had become a symbol of resistance in demonstrations in recent years. Until last Wednesday, quote, National Disruption Day, the police have largely refrained from interfering in the rallies. Their intervention followed Ben Gavir's provocative demand that the police chief stop the protesters, whom he branded anarchists, from disturbing the order. Saturday saw a second eruption of violence after the authorities in Tel Aviv deployed mounted police, special forces and water cannons against demonstrators who had broken through the barriers leading to the Ayalon Highway and halted the traffic. They chanted, shame, and where were you in Huara? at police officers making arrests. Following the rallies, Ben Gavir said that he has no intention of apologising to anyone. Quote, certainly not to the anarchists who seek to set the state of Tel Aviv on fire, end of quote. The protest organisers announced that they would hold another day of disruption around the country on Thursday, March 9. But it is impossible for Israeli workers to halt the government's plan for a dictatorship or to prevent all-out war with the Palestinians without rejecting nationalism and allying themselves directly with the Palestinians. This means rejecting the Zionist project of a Jewish state based on the ethnic cleansing of the Palestinian population and unifying their struggles with those of their Arab-class brothers and sisters for the overthrow of the capitalist profit system and the nation-state framework on which it is based for the socialist reorganisation of the economy of the entire Middle East region so that its vast resources can be utilised for the benefit of all its peoples. Such a perspective must be fought for against all those parties and organisations that work to subordinate the working class to an alliance with one or another of the imperialist powers and the Arab regimes. It means building sections of the International Committee of the Fourth International in Israel, Palestine and throughout the Middle East to lead and organise this struggle. Stalin, the grave digger of the revolution. David North, March 7, 2023. This article was originally posted on Twitter. Seventy years ago, on March 5, 1953, Joseph Stalin died at the age of 73. To the extent that the worst defeats of the working class in the 20th century can be attributed to the crimes and betrayals of an individual, that person is Stalin. As early as 1927, Trotsky described Stalin to his face as, quote, the gravedigger of the revolution. That proved to be true in the most literal sense of the word. Stalin is remembered in history as a mass murderer who ordered the killing of the leaders of the Bolshevik Party and hundreds of thousands of socialists who had fought for the victory of the October Revolution, the creation of the USSR and the victory of world socialism. But Stalin, the individual, was a mediocrity 
His rise to power was entirely bound up with the bureaucratic degeneration of the Bolshevik party. Stalinism was, in essence, the outcome of the bureaucracy's usurpation of political power from the working class. The bureaucracy chose Stalin as its leader because he possessed the personal and political characteristics required to defend its interests and privileges, that is, ruthlessness, lust for personal power, vulgar pragmatism and nationalist outlook. The latter element of his political outlook was of decisive importance. The programmatic foundation of Stalinism was the anti-Marxist, quote, theory of socialism in one country, which was first advanced by Stalin in December 1924. This nationalist revision of Marxism justified the abandonment of the program of World Socialist Revolution and the subordination of the struggles of the international working class to the national interest of the Soviet bureaucracy. This was the theoretical and political basis of the Stalinist attack on Trotsky, the denunciation of the theory of permanent revolution and the Soviet bureaucracy's betrayal of the working class. The Stalinist regime had become, by 1933, a counter-revolutionary force, the victory of Hitler's Nazis in Germany, a political catastrophe for which Stalin and Stalinism were responsible, led Trotsky to call for the building of the Fourth International. Trotsky's analysis of the counter-revolutionary role of Stalinism, substantiated in his great book, Revolution Betrayed, has been vindicated by history. Trotsky warned that the Stalinist regime, unless overthrown by the working class, would result in capitalist restoration. Stalin's political heirs, that is, the bureaucratic flunkies selected to replace the Bolsheviks that he had murdered, continued and completed the process of political betrayal. The Soviet Union was dissolved in 1991, only 38 years after Stalin's death. Trotsky predicted, quote, The laws of history are more powerful than the bureaucratic apparatus, end of quote. The edifice of Stalinism is a heap of ruins. But as the centenary of the founding of the Trotskyist movement approaches, the Fourth International is growing throughout the world. For these articles and more, go to the World Socialist website, www.wsws.org. For the World Socialist website, this has been Carol Diviak. The World Socialist website is published by the International Committee of the Fourth International, the ICFI, the leadership of the World Socialist Movement, the Fourth International founded by Leon Trotsky in 1938. The World Socialist website relies entirely on the donations of readers and listeners for financial support. To give to the WSWS or to set up a regular monthly contribution, go to wsws.org forward slash donate. We urge our listeners to join the International Committee of the Fourth International and one of its affiliated political parties and take up the struggle for socialism 